Computing Broadcast, a fascinating round in three, two, one. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Hello, Fascination. Welcome to the show. So as we all make this slow march towards the apocalypse, one of the things that we're going to have to avoid, or one of the things we it is impossible to ignore, are toxic chemicals. They're everywhere, uh, in our water, in the air we breathe, in the food we eat. But how toxic are they to human beings? How much do we need to worry about them? Well, I say a lot worry about them all. Let's figure out what's going on. Uh, so I've decided to maybe calm my fears by bringing on a toxicologist who can maybe uh, allay my fears, uh, give me a set of guidelines to figure out what is worth worrying about and what is not. And that is Dr. Gerald LeBlanc, who is uh, you know, a 40-year vet of toxicology, knows what chemicals that are dangerous, which are not, and he's going to help all of us navigate this uh, chemical soup that we all live in. So let's, with no further ado, let's get him on the show and get to the process. Gerald, thank you so much for being on the show today. The, the first thing I've got to ask you though, is it doctor, is it professor, is it, uh, what do you prefer? It's all of the above, you don't need to use any of them though. Uh, everyone, calls like? me, everyone calls me Jerry. And that's fine. Jerry, just yes. plain old, plain old Jerry. Now I have to say, so when I was doing a little bit of research, you don't look like the Gerald LeBlanc that comes up in every search. The, uh, because uh, he is, the, he is a the rapper. Arcadia. Oh, the rapper. Yes. Yeah. The rapper. So I don't know if you're familiar yeah. with his work, you know, beautiful struggle or the hustle of the year, hustle of the year three. Are you familiar with any of these works? No. No. Okay. Nope. So, because I was going to start with a conversation about you know his discography, but I'm guessing you might not be the person to discuss that with. I think you're probably right. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> like, like what? What would you ask? Uh, well, I mean, how did you think you know he developed as an artist between you know beautiful struggle uh, and you know it's it's hard out here for a pimp? Like, do you think that he really developed? Um, you know, as a, as a, as a poet, as a storyteller between those two albums, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm totally. Not for you. Okay. All right. Fair enough. (laughs) Fair enough. Well, that seems like a toxic question to you. Uh, and you know, that's okay because you are a toxicologist. So I think that, uh, this is going to go well. I mean, you have to assess the risk, right? I had to assess the risk of asking you that question and clearly, uh, I made a, you know a, a terrible error in, in my in my math, uh, but so I wanted to talk to you because I you know I found your book and it's always kind of amazed me how many toxins are actually in our environment, and what's interesting is after I read your book I realized that what I thought it was going to be was a conversation about the things that are toxic in the environment, but in fact it's really about assessing you know, what's in the, like assessing the dangers of what's in the environment. And I think that that's, that's kind of, you know, an interesting take. I think we're gonna have a nice lively discussion uh, because as my viewers will know, I'm kind of a cynic. So I think that things are much more dangerous out there uh, than you would present in your book, which you played a pretty rosy picture uh, of things out there. So this is kind of interesting. So tell me a little bit about yourself, you know, how you got into this and all the expertise that you have as a toxicologist. Sure. Well, I've I've been at it for for a long time. I uh, forty always plus years, to... I think, in the biz. Yeah. I'm sorry. Forty plus years in the biz of uh, not yeah. quite. Yeah. Well, close to forty, probably. Uh, I yeah. mean, I I when I started my undergraduate studies, I knew I wanted to be a biologist, mm-hmm. uh, and I was torn between uh, human health issues and environmental issues. And when I was a third year undergrad, I got a job in a lab. And it was actually a, a toxicology lab where they were evaluating the uh, the hazards associated with products, soaps, mm. uh, pesticides, and things of that nature. And I just fell in love with the work. Um, and so it made the decision for me. Uh, I decided I was going to be a toxicologist. And I stayed with that company after I graduated 
for uh, about eight years. Um, but I always aspired to get a PhD and do basic research. And sure. that sort of fell onto a back burner because I had a good job and I was making good money. But right. I finally decided I was going to bite the bullet, quit my job and go back to school, which I did. Mm -hmm. And got my PhD, focused on toxicology, did my postdoctoral work uh, at Harvard Medical School where I was doing more pharmacology, toxicology. Uh, and then accepted a faculty position at NC State, North Carolina State. And that's been 30, that was 33 years ago. So I've been there uh, a long time. And, and, and uh, you know, that Harvard Medical School on your resume, that's going to give you a lot of, uh, you know, gravitas, a lot of, uh, you know, credibility, as they say, when it comes to this type of stuff. You know, yeah, whether I, that's true or not, I don't know, but it's definitely going to make you. Yeah, I, I think it was it was certainly one of the best experiences that I had in terms of growing as a scientist. Uh, mm -hmm. I, you know, I, when I started there, I think I had a bit of a chip on my shoulder because I had mm -hmm. eight years practical experience before getting right. my PhD, and yeah. uh, I realized uh, how little I knew <laughs> uh, when I started uh, at Harvard, and uh, I was only there three years, but I learned a lot and. Uh, if nothing else, it certainly paved the way for me to get a good faculty position, which are hard to get. No, definitely. So, um, yeah. so, so my career has been entirely uh, evaluating chemicals with respect to their hazards, both from a perspective of human health and environmental health. And then really, it's just been maybe the past five or six years, I've sort of transitioned from uh, basic research on how chemicals cause damage to living things to what are the risks actually associated with them in the environment, things that we're exposed to. And so I've changed my focus somewhat. And that's what uh, uh, stimulated the book. I was I started teaching uh, a class in risk assessment and uh, decided that there's just a lot of naivety in the general public with respect to uh, Knowing the difference really between what is hazardous and, and what is the risk of hazard. And I, and I felt that it, it's not a difficult concept, and, uh, but there was no book for the lay uh, reader to understand that. So that was my mission in writing that book. And this is Everyday Chemicals, Understanding the Risks, which is a, that's a pretty good title for doing exactly what you, what you just said. And after reading it, my biggest takeaway was that lavender essential oil can cause breast <laughs> development in men. Uh, that's, I, I did not know that. And, and as a matter of fact, a lot of the chemicals you talk about can actually change the breasts of men. Uh, that was <laughs> kind of a strange through line, but it made me worried uh, about what the chemicals are. You know, you, and you talk about how some of this stuff is, yeah, it's not that harmful. But when I hear that, I'm like, man, I don't, I don't know. I like my chest the way it is. It, it's, it's interesting you say that because I... I teach a course on risk assessment to freshmen. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, I, I say these are kids. You know, they're just they're fresh out of high school. Yeah, right. Uh, they're very naive, and they tend to struggle. They have a hard time with a lot of the concepts. But invariably, when I ask a question about lavender oil and the impact that it can have on the human body, everybody gets it right. It causes breast development in boys. <laughs> you know, that's right. the one point in the whole course. That's the one point that it's a message that everybody takes home. <laughs> I mean, hey, you know, I mean, it's it sticks out like a sore thumb. Uh, and also, you know, you're at NC State. Go Wolfpack. You know, I want to give much love out to Mr. and Mrs. Wolf, who I've always respected their work as the mascots uh, for NC State. Uh, you know, but you mentioned a chip on your shoulder. And you kind of start the book with this fun story about uh, talking to your college, you know, your your, your freshman class about uh you know, they, you ask them what Gen X is and they oh, make yeah. a lot of jokes about, you know, old people, you know, like, yeah. you know, like me, uh, who are borderline <laughs> Gen X. And then you tell them that actually what you're, you know, he, he, he describes something, uh, some insecticide and you say, well, it's DDT. Uh, and you think he's referring to that and not Gen X. And then he says to you, the professor, you know, I think I know what I'm talking about here. I wrote a paper <laughs> on it in high school. Which, if that doesn't describe, you know, not you know, that describes maybe you when you were going into Harvard, but every kid coming, it definitely described me going into school. I would tell and my professors what's up. So the, the funny thing about that story is he wasn't tr correcting me per se. He wasn't listening right. to me. He had no idea what I was saying. He was just going on with his story about uh, yeah. about 
describing DDT when I was asking about Gen X. Uh, but, right. but that was a pretty typical situation with those with those kids. But they were fun to work with nonetheless. Uh, it's sort of like a, a blank slate. And every once in a while, you know, you're, you're hitting home with something that they're going to remember. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's interesting because, you know, I, I, you mentioned the naivete. Yeah, I will say, you know, at the start, you're the expert. I understand that. I will default to you. But I also want you to know, my audience knows this, is that I'm kind of a cynic. I'm a little paranoid. And I think that, you know, we see a lot of times where people and agencies in a position of authority will tell us something is fine, some chemical is okay, and then, you know, 10, 5, 10 years, months later, they'll tell us that it's toxic and we should get it out of our system immediately. I have plenty of examples, which we will get to, but I think that's where my cynicism comes in. It's that we say things with this definitive authority that later turns out to be incorrect. You know, It certainly can happen. And, and I, I look forward to hearing about the uh, examples that you're going to bring up. Do you? Do you look forward to that? Do you look forward to that? Uh, well, let's start, out with the, <laughs> let's start out with a great story that I think kind of got you into this because it kind of, you know, it, it, it kind of proves what you are saying in this. And I think I fall into this category too, 100%. So if you don't mind telling this story about, uh, you know, uh, your dad and uh, I think it's Dizanon. The story you had with yeah, where you know where you you kind of came upon him uh, and you kind of came to your own conclusions. So, you mind yeah. telling that story real quickly? Sure. So that that takes us back to my uh, undergraduate years. I was a biology major. I think I was a sophomore. I may have been a junior. I'm not sure. I know it was before I actually started working for that uh, toxicology lab that I mentioned. Mm -hmm. uh, but I came home. I was a, a commuting student, so I was living at home. And I came home after a day of classes, and um, and my mom wasn't home, and, and my mom didn't drive. She was always home. Uh, and, and I thought it was a bit odd. There was no note from her, um, mm -hmm. no indication that she had been preparing dinner. Uh, where was mom? And then the phone rang. I answered the phone, and there's mom on the phone. And she informed me that she was at the hospital, and that my dad, who was an avid gardener, uh, came in in the morning after working in his garden and had a convulsion in the living room floor. Just fell over, lost all muscle control. She said he was swearing profusely. Uh, he just couldn't control his body. And uh, so, no, no. Did, was he was he a was he like the the dad in a Christmas story? Did he you know weave tapestries of profanities uh, the way an artist works in other uh, clay? I mean, is that kind of how he worked, or was that this unusual? It was very unusual. Uh, okay. All right. I, I, you know, I, I learned as as I got older and my relationship with my father changed and evolved that uh, he, he had a good uh, he had a, a, a language that I never heard as a child. But the reality <laughs> is in the house, I never heard anything like that. Got before. it. OK. Um, okay. So anyway, I uh, went so, so my mom told me he was in the hospital, and um, and I was preparing to go to the hospital, uh, see what was going on. But before leaving, I just sort of had to get my head straight. Um, mm -hmm. And and we lived in in a rural area, and we had sheds in the back of the house. And there was one shed; it was a workshop, and I used to hang out there a lot just to think about things. So I went into the <laughs> shed, and I was just shit. kind of wandering around and just sort of trying to get processed what was just happening. And I noticed that uh, my dad had obviously been in there, uh, but it was in total disarray. You know, he his, his garden tools were just hanging around. Uh, there was garbage on the floor, and it was just not like uh, my dad. My dad was a very meticulous gardener. And then I noticed that there was a container of uh, insecticide, an organophosphate insecticide, as you said earlier, it was diazinon. And it was just sitting there, and it was empty. And the gears started turning in my head. It's like, okay, my dad had convulsions after working here. Obviously, he was feeling bad while he was here. Uh, he was working with insecticide. I knew from my classes that I was taking that uh, diazinon could interfere with nerve transmission and can cause uh, convulsions. So I put it all together, and I said, my dad's been poisoned by pesticide exposure. So I went to the hospital. And uh, my dad was, was feeling better. He had a, an IV hooked up to him, and, and he was 
he was tired, but he was feeling better. He wanted to come home. Uh, the doctor came in and said, no, you know, you need to rest here. We need to just watch you for 24 hours and make sure you're fine. So um, the doctor left the room and I followed the doctor, you know, mm-hmm. uh, this Mr. Know-it-all, 17-year-old. Mm-hmm. And, right. uh, and I told the doctor that uh, I believe my father was uh, poisoned with an organophosphate pesticide, and he might want to consider atropine, which is the treatment for that kind of situation. <laughs> yep, and, yep. you know, the doctor looked at me, shrugged his, soldier, his shoulders, you know, and he said, he's dehydrated. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and walked away. And, right. uh, and apparently my dad was dehydrated. He, after getting IV fluids, he recovered completely. But then, you know, two decades later, I'm a professional toxicologist, and I started right. thinking about that episode, and uh, just thinking about it in, in more of an analytical fashion. And I realized that the doctor was right and I was wrong, that the amount of diazinon that he would have had to expose himself to to experience a convulsion was much higher than he would have if he was dusting his tomatoes or whatever he was doing. So doctor was Wait, right. It took you, hold on, it took you two decades to realize <laughs> you were wrong? I, I love that level of stubbornness, by the way. I truly well, respect that. Yeah, it, 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 it's more like, actually, it's more like three or maybe even four decades. And it's only because I started thinking about it because I was writing the yeah. book and right. I started thinking about examples. Yeah. I mean, it's a great example. Well, I mean, and it shows that sometimes things are not as they appear, right? I mean, I think that, you know, this is logical thinking is, is a crucial part to what you're talking about. You know, right. I, did, I did a whole episode uh, on, on the, um, you know, fascinating nouns on the the uh, handbook of the human mind, the analytical thinking, the, the power of reason, and how it can kind of be, you know, in the human beings, it can be usurped by emotion or, um, you know, or, or even things like as you thought, you know, you, you had this idea and you became kind of myopic on this is the answer without looking at everything. And I think yeah. that everyone is prone to that, which is, Every- I think, kind of, and, and it's kind of what you're talking about against in your book, right? You're kind of giving people the tools to yeah. analyze this stuff properly. And, and I talk about that in the book. I talk about how the brain has sort of these these two distinct operating systems where one functions mm-hmm. on emotion and gut feelings and instincts, uh, and the other one is more cerebral. We think yeah. about things and how yeah. the two work together with respect to risk. Uh, you know, if we're, uh, if we're exposed to um, any kind of risk, let's say you're crossing the street and you see a speeding car coming towards you, you don't stop and think about, well, how fast is that car going? Do I have time to get on the other side of the street? You just get right. out of its way. And that's that right. instinctual response. And it saves people's lives. And it's good. Uh, yeah. With respect to chemical exposure, that often comes into play. Uh, the, the bad thing is people don't proceed into a cerebral uh, thought process beyond that. They just stop. So they say, oh, my water is contaminated with Gen X. Right. Um, yeah. that's bad. Uh, I'm going to complain. I'm going to stop drinking the water. Uh, something needs to be done about it. Well, that's a great first response because you have very limited information and it might be harmful, yeah. but secondarily, it's like, well, how much Gen X is there? How toxic is Gen X? Is there really a problem? Do I have to stop drinking my water? And, and, and what I'm doing in the book, or at least trying to do is to sort of provide the, the pathway that people can go through that process if indeed they're interested in knowing. I mean, a lot of people are content with just saying, uh, it's bad, I don't want it in my water. Well, that's fine. But, you know, we're, we have somewhere between 40 and 90,000 chemicals in commerce in the United States. That's a lot of chemicals. Uh, yeah. And if we worry about every one of them, uh, you know, we're <laughs> we're not going to be in very good shape just from our mental well-being, never mind our physical well-being. Sure. So we need to I, deal I, with yeah, I think so. But let, so let me ask you a question. So let's say you're drinking your orange juice in the morning, right? And I told you, ah, there's just a little bit of poop in there, right? I mean, it's fine. You know, it's not going to har- it's not going to harm you. You know, it's it's look, we've done studies on poop in rats and we've learned that they actually will survive breakfast. It's there's no long-term effects. Uh, of poop in your orange juice. Are you going to be super excited to drink that glass of orange juice? I certainly would not. Um, <laughs> and that's not Gen X. That's not DDT. No, that's not, just poop. You know what I mean? Just poop. That's, um, right, just poop. 
But, you know, the first thing is, is I have a very limited amount of information. All you've told me is there's some poop in there. Uh, maybe I can see it. Maybe I can't. I don't know. Right. But right. it's easy enough for me to just put the glass down and take a glass of water instead. Uh, there's an easy option. So let me ask you a question. Say I, sure. uh, do you drink coffee? Uh, I don't drink coffee, no. Uh, I, 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 coffee's for addicts. I don't drink coffee. Okay, let's make believe you drink coffee, okay? All right, all right. And I coffee. tell you that there's a, uh, there, there's a carcinogen in that coffee. It's called acrylamide, and it's a known cancer-causing agent. Uh, would that influence your morning cup of coffee? I, I love that you mentioned this. I didn't put it in my notes, but I was just listening to an interview with another toxicologist who was talking about acrylamide in coffee, uh, in all burnt, basically burned grains, and how much we actually take in. And yes, it did worry me uh, the, <laughs> because it is because it is it can be everywhere because we eat a lot of grains. Now I don't drink coffee. It's not uh, just I, grains. It's you know it's it's most vegetable material that's cooked at high temperature. So. Right. Think about potato chips. Think about French fries. Uh, I was actually cooking French fries. I, I had actually made French fries like from a potato. and was cooking yeah. them in an air fryer while I was listening to this episode. <laughs> and almost I was like, well, I'm now I'm, I'm done with the French fries. Do I eat them? So that's where my mindset was. I couldn't throw them out, uh, but it, it gave me pause. So you ate them. I I did. I did. Okay. I, I did. Here's here's why though. Here's oh, hold on a second, Jerry. I'm going to call you Jerry. I think we're friends Absolutely. now. Uh, so here's why I ate them. I also have. Look, we are not only are we complex chemically as human beings, which I'll get to later on, but we're also complex mentally and emotionally, right? I think we can all agree on that. So one of my weird hangups is throwing out food. So mm -hmm. even though I've just learned that there's this potential chemical in this food. I didn't want to throw out the potatoes until I learned a little bit more. Now, uh, on the other hand, to to counter that, uh, I bought a, a, a big box of Cliff Bars from Costco, had a couple, and they tasted really weird. Now, I called the company, had them replaced. I'm not going to eat the rest of these Cliff Bars. I'm going to have to go and put them into a compost pile. So I, I, I'm not crazy all around, um, but I think when it when it came to that, I did to answer your question shortly. I did eat the French fries, but tell me more about acrylamide. Should I have thrown them out? Did I make the wrong decision? Do I need to go to the hospital immediately? Well, those are a lot of questions. So yes, no, no, yes, no, and maybe perfect. Okay. Uh, <laughs> the, 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 yeah. Acrylamide is is a carcinogen. There's no two ways yeah. about it. But uh, you know, in the book, I. Uh, I'm repeatedly quoting the famous toxicologist Paracelsus, uh, and his famous mm -hmm. quote is, all things are poisonous, it's the dose that makes, all things are toxic, it's the dose that makes the poison. Right. And while carcinogenicity of acrylamide is it's a characteristic of its hazard, um, it's an issue of dose. Are you getting enough acrylamide in French fries to cause cancer. Well, unless you're eating a heck of a lot of French fries, the answer is no, you don't have to worry about it. Uh, in the from case of French fries alone. From French fries alone, that's right. Yes. Right. So yeah, it, you know, if you're eating all kinds of fried vegetable matter or roasted mm. vegetable matter, um, the more you eat, the more you have to think about what that risk might be. And uh, at some point in time, you, you, uh, you, know, you can make a subject, subjective decision that uh, mm. I need to cut back. Um, and I'm, I'm a big fan of moderation. Don't do anything in excess. Right. Uh, or you can you know, take the time and the trouble, if you really love your French fries, to figure out how much acrylamide is there and whether it <laughs> indeed is enough to be worried about. Right. Well, I will tell you, so at the, at the back of your book, you know, so I found your book to be to be interesting all the way through. And then at the end, you kind of give there's like five different sections where you talk about various different individual types of toxins, whether it be something you put on your skin, something you drink, something you eat, pharmaceuticals, this type of thing. Uh, some of the stories, they're interesting. So I got through them really quickly. But I have to tell you. Uh, as someone who works in Hollywood and has read some pretty unbelievable stories, some of these did take the cake. Specifically, one story where there was this 
this a guy and a girl. I couldn't tell if they were a couple or not, uh, but they were arguing over several nights, I believe on BPA in the water. And the woman, you know, over, you know, three or four nights later decided to research this, you know, a- almost ad infinitum and was reading, you know, several studies on the BPA in the water and whether it would affect her and then guessing how much they were ingesting. No this, these were not Americans. So you must have translated this from some experience you had somewhere else because <laughs> no one that in this country is taking that level of time to figure right. out if something is toxic for them. Right. So, so in writing- Did it really world, happen, Jerry, is what I'm saying. Did that, was that a real story? No, it's not a real story. <laughs> I knew it. Busted. <laughs> I knew it. I got you. But the, re- the reality, is an I mean, all those stories in the end are yeah. either- Actually based um, or loosely, <laughs> loosely based on experiences that I've had or or interactions that I've had with people, and some are total fantasy, and that one okay. is total fantasy. Yeah, uh, without question. Yeah. <laughs> well, you you may recall that when yeah. whenever they met and, and they weren't a couple, they were friends. But yeah, whenever okay. they met from childhood. Whenever they met to discuss BPA in, in disgusting detail, uh, yeah. it was always over a bottle of wine. I uh, remember. And, and they needed that true. lubrication to, uh, <laughs> to uh, get them through it. I, I had a, yeah. someone who read the book and, and wrote to me, and it was very complimentary of the book. But he was writing because he had a question. And he wanted to know, uh, was, um, uh, was there a hidden meaning in the fact that throughout this discussion of whether or not BPA is harmful, <laughs> to them yeah. that this couple was drinking wine and alcohol is a known carcinogen. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. That's a good question. There because you, go. you can't get you can't get away from these chemicals. And absolutely I, I think that's part of it because another argument that you make is, you know, that when people say something is natural, they immediately think that it's okay for you. But I mm-hmm. think I'm not the first person to make this argument. I think the further we move away from nature, that is what leads us down the road to cancer. So all these chemicals that we have are synthesized, they're made in a lab, uh, they're, you know, they, they interfere with our body's natural order. And I think when, when that starts to happen in excess, that's a problem independent of whether each individual chemical alone is toxic for you individually. Does that make sense? It's it's logical. I don't know if right. it makes sense. So, uh, okay. so let me comment on that. You, you, you right. said a mouthful, and, and all of it was very interesting. Thank um, you. The issue of natural versus man-made, um, I don't buy that. Um, I mean, nature is much more better at making toxic chemicals than we are. Um, and, uh, you know, if you, you, haven't, ask, you haven't heard my episode on Sidney Gottlieb who created some of the most powerful artificial toxins uh, yeah. known to man no. at least for the CIA. So uh, he's, <laughs> we're pretty good at it too. Okay, yeah. I'll have to look at that. Yeah, we're uh, pretty good. The, the, the reality is that uh, most of the chemicals that are made in the laboratory are benign. I mean, they. I'm going to sound here like I'm a, an industry rep and I'm not trying sure to do. Be. You yeah, sure do, Jerry. I know. I'm guilty. Um, Mr. You're Mr. LeBlanc now. Let's let's get back on that in a minute. Chemical apologist. Mr. LeBlanc, chemical apologist. That's who you are now. Okay, now I have to address it. So, <laughs> with, again, when writing the book, I was like yeah. really uh, intent on writing an objective, unbiased assessment of chemical risk. Mm. And... Um, I, I got reviews back from people who read the book, and I got reviews back with from people who um, represented industry or agriculture or things of that nature who have an interest in chemical use, mm-hmm. and 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 they were accusing me of of you know being a, an environmental fanatic and uh, not being really fair. And then I was getting reviews also back from individuals who were. Um, more environmentally oriented and interested in health. And, and they were saying, he's an industry shill. I mean, he doesn't, you know, you can't <laughs> right. listen to this guy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and so my initial thought was, okay, I succeeded. Everybody's unhappy. So I must have been succeeded in, in, in walking right. down 
the middle. And, and that's been corroborated by the reviews that I'm seeing from people, regular people who are reading the mm-hmm. book and saying, you know, it's, it's unbiased, it's objective, and that's why I really like the book. So uh, I'll take ex- exception with uh, uh, favoring one side over the other. But sure, the sure. reality, okay, the scientific reality is that chemicals you know, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk myself into a hole. Perfect. Uh, again, I love I'm going to sound biased, but most. So I won't say I won't say a word. I'll let you. I'll let you walk, dig a hole and fall into it. You'll let me walk. Over the I'll let you walk right into the hole. Yeah. Thank you. You won't push. <laughs> I won't uh, push. No. <laughs> most chemicals are benign. They'll get into the body, and they've got nothing to do in there, and and then the body gets rid of them. They don't do any harm unless. The dose is high enough. The dose makes the poison. And so if the dose gets high enough, well, then it just, these chemicals just start getting in the way of normal processes and can raise havoc in the body. And cancer is one of the ways that they can do that. But we're talking about high dosages for the most part. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we don't have to worry that much about those chemicals. What we have to worry about are the chemicals that are smart, that they have the ability to get not only get into the body, but then to raise havoc in the body at low exposure levels or low doses. Um, Mm. That is, they fool the body into thinking, oh, this is an important nutrient, let's put it in this protein, and then it destroys the protein, things like that. Um, Those chemicals are the exceptions rather than the rule, which is not to say we don't look for them. I mean, we have to know what they are and we have to regulate them accordingly. But I think it's, it's... it's not necessary to worry about, again, the forty to 90,000 chemicals that are out there because most of them are just not going to do any harm at the levels that we're exposed to. Sure. And that's the caveat. Yeah, I, I think I, I mean I think that there's probably some truth in that. I just I have a heart. I mean, so you know, in the book you talk about a couple of different ways that chemicals can interact, right? So you have you know bioaccumulation where things can you know you take them in and they kind of sit in your body, they get stored in your fat or wherever, and they you as you take them in, you know, you you just keep accumulating them. Yeah, so biologically. the dose gets, the dose gets higher and higher and higher. Yeah, right. Uh, you know, you've got target specificity, and this is kind of what you're talking about with. You know, where a chemical mimics another chemical that's natural to your body uh, that can, you know, that I think that's right. Where, yeah, it's, yeah, so it targets a biological action in your body and it kind of messes things up that way. Uh, you know, and I think those are interesting, but I also think that, you know, you also talk about unintended consequences of toxicity. And I think this is where my issue always comes with all these chemicals, where it's, you do have these types of things that happen. You can bioaccumulate, you can have, you know, it can take the place of other natural order in your body. And I don't think we understand chemicals the way that we think we do. Human history is littered with hubris. And I think that nowhere else have I seen this more than in chemicals in our environment that people tell us are okay, that are benign. And look, I'm not an expert. You are. But I, as a certified cynic, find it hard to believe that we should just ignore 90,000 chemicals because they may be benign. We don't even understand how the human body works with any real true level of accuracy. How could we possibly know that all these chemicals at the levels they are, are benign in our world and that we're not just walking around, breathing, swimming, living in a true toxic soup? Because we'd all be dead by now if that were the case. Slow uh, killing, slow kill, <laughs> slow a slow roast, a slow roast, <laughs> slow as I, as we accumulate acrylamide, slow <laughs> roast. <laughs> well, you 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 used the word ignore. You said why why should we ignore all these chemicals? Yeah, uh, and we shouldn't. We should not ignore all these chemicals. We need to know what their hazard is. We need to know how right. much we're exposed to. Um, so, you know, I, I reject, I reject that, that premise that we should ignore all these chemicals. Uh, we, we need to increase the knowledge that we have and, and we know too little about too many chemicals. Um, yeah, we, I agree. we just can't keep up and that's a real problem. That's a real issue. And, uh, and it's one that worries me. Uh, and we do the best we can. So what we do is we prioritize. We say, okay, well, 
what chemicals are likely to have hazard based on their structure uh, or because they're related to another chemical that we found to be very hazardous. And we can prioritize those and we can start learning about those and regulating those. Or there are those chemicals that we're just exposed to a lot of them in our daily lives. Well, then we need to know how hazardous they are. So we prioritize in that manner. You know, of the 40 to 90,000 chemicals that are out there, you're exposed to a small percentage of them. Uh, They just don't, you just never meet them in your daily life. Uh, and, uh, and and those would not be priority chemicals. Um, right. and, and, the, and again, just history has shown that most chemicals elicit toxicity by processes in which they just get into the body. And if they're there at a high enough concentration, they just muck things up. They just get in the way. Um, and, and those really aren't chemicals we need to worry about because it requires really high dosages to cause problems. Sure. I, well, so I, there's this. So I'm going to go, I'm going to prove my point by referring to a great movie from 1989 called Batman. And there was this. So in that, the Joker uh, attempts to take over Gotham City uh, with this chemical called Smilex. Does this sound familiar? Did you see this movie? Yeah, I remember. Okay. okay. So what's what, so all of a sudden people start turning up. Normal people start laughing, going into a convulsive fit of laughter, and then dying with a big smile on their face. So no one can figure out where's this chemical coming from. So everyone stops using, you know, deodorant and shampoo and everything. They don't know which one of these items that it's in, right? So Batman, you know, played by the great Michael Keaton, says, Alfred, let's go shopping. And they, he goes out and he buys a bunch of stuff. And what he determines is that it is the combination of all of these types of products that, you know, he figures out what combination it works that creates this effect, the Smilex effect. And that's how he, you know, kind of defeats the Joker in some ways. I think that that's kind of how the world works. We don't, it's, you know, the other thing we didn't talk about is synergy, right? Like, I think a lot of these chemicals can work together in ways that we couldn't even possibly imagine, no matter how much we know about chemistry or the body. Uh, Sometimes these weird things happen, and that's when we're being careful not even talking about the times when we're completely careless. Uh, and those are some of the, the, the examples I'm going to bring up in a minute. Uh, but, you know, I think that's, I think, where people get worried, you know, is, is who knows what these things can do sometimes. So, so what people worry about are not the knowns. They worry about the unknowns. And, and that's right. true. And, and there are a lot of unknowns in, in the chemical risk assessment process. And, and risk the, no, the known unknowns and the unknown knowns. I think there was a, a guy in the Bush administration who did that <laughs> for uh, Errol Morris movie. Made, <laughs> the known unknowns, yes. Made, made the quote famous, that's right. I forgot who that is, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> who was that? I think it was the defense secretary who I cannot right? think of. Uh, Ashcroft's only name is coming to my head, and he, I think he was attorney general. But uh, but anyway, I remember watching that movie, and it's such a great line. It's it's actually true, but it sounds ridiculous. But it, it the known unknowns, it actually does make sense. Yeah. Well, you, you know, I I can accept that, and I think mm-hmm. any um, any reasonable person would accept that that premise that there may be interactions. Uh, chemicals may work together in manners that we don't understand. And, and cause some heightened adverse response. Um, sure, that's certainly the case, but then we can look at the research and there's a mm. lot of research on chemical mixtures and what we need to be concerned about and what we don't need to be concerned about. Um, and you know that would be another, another podcast uh, mm-hmm. because there's so much information, but we do have a pretty good understanding and with and a lot of precedent about how chemicals interact, when they interact, and when they do interact, how big a deal is it? And yeah. um, and it doesn't take away from our need to understand these mixtures, um, but we can deal with them. I mean, we 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 can we can we in the in the field we use what we refer to as uncertainty factors when there's something we're not mm-hmm. quite sure of we basically just fudge the data and 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 and, and make things uh, right. appear more dangerous just to be more safe and yeah. and we can use uncertainty factors to deal with those kinds of unknowns well, it's interesting because it seems like a lot of this work, you're a toxicologist, I'm, I'm just playing one on this podcast, but I think that one of the interesting things that I found in your book was that 
you know, th- that does happen as we do increase the toxicity of, you know, to make sure that it's safe for EPA levels or, or, you know, government legal limits or whatever. But what's interesting about that is rarely are these chemicals tested in humans. They're usually tested in animals. And then we infer from how the animal reacted at certain doses than how that would react in a human being, despite the fact that we are way more chemically complex than a rat or a mouse or a guinea pig. I don't know. I don't even know what we're testing on anymore. Uh, so, I, and, and I think that that extra, extrapolating that out all the way to humans, there are, I don't know that it's an exact correlation that makes me confident that these are always correct, even with those, those um, uh, buffers in play. Uh, well, again, you're right. Um, you know, I, like, I, never, I never tire hearing that, Jerry. Never tire of hearing that. <laughs> we use animal models. Uh, we can't test humans, obviously. Um, Why not? We, Why yeah, not? Uh, How about people who say that this stuff is safe? Okay, then you go and, <laughs> you go and eat burnt French fries for a year. Well, if you're going to pay happens. them, maybe they, maybe they would maybe be they willing will. to do it. Uh, but yeah. there, there are still ethical concerns we have to think about. <laughs> so we use animal models um, yeah. and we make predictions based on these animal models. And you're right. A, a human is not a rat. And um, it's naive to think that you can make a precise correlation between how a rat responds and how a human responds. But it gets us into the ballpark more often than not. Mm-hmm. And and then we follow on our uncertainty factors um, and, and we use them generously so that when if for just say, if for example, that a chemical based on lab animal studies, it was determined that uh, a chemical is safe if it's present in your drinking water at a concentration of 10 units, whatever. OK, okay so that's what the animal study says. But then the risk assessor looks at that and says, okay, but we don't know if a rat is a good model for humans. So we're going to bring that down to one instead of 10. Okay. And the rats were exposed for three months. The humans might be exposed for 70 years for all we know. So let's bring it down another 10. And we really don't know what the reproductive effects of this chemical are because they were never evaluated. Right for reproductive toxicity. So let's bring it down another 10. So now we have an animal study that says 10 units is safe if it's not exceeded. But the the limit that you're going to see in terms of regulation for human exposure is going to be 1.1.01. It's going to be a thousand times lower. And that's common. That is common. So there's a wide margin of safety between what the animals studies tell us and, and what the regulations say we can and cannot be exposed to. Um, and so it's important when you see a, a number that, say, EPA is, is publishing and saying that this is the allowable limit of the chemical in our food or in our water. That doesn't mean, well, t- let me tell you what it does mean. It means that as long as you're not exposed to more than that limit, you're safe. You will not be harmed with a high degree of confidence. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that if you exceed that number, you're at risk of ill health. Mm-hmm. It's just that the confidence that it's safe is getting smaller and smaller <laughs> uh, as you get sure. close to the number that we know will be dangerous. Right. So, okay. Well, and I, it's interesting that you bring up water because I think that this is probably the biggest area of concern with people. You know, you talk about 90,000 chemicals. We're not going to be exposed to a lot of them. Yeah, that's I bet that that's right. Although 10% of them is still 9,000, which is a big number. Uh, but, you know, I, I, I'm guessing that drinking water is really the key. And it's funny. So I grew up in a small town. I did a whole episode on the history of my small town, Braidwood, Illinois. And one of the things that made our town so unique was that it was right next to a power plant, uh, a new, a ComEd nuclear power plant. And this always kind of worried me. So growing up, I know this is going to sound weird, but the, the, the water always tasted kind of thick and weird. And I remember when I was a kid, Kool-Aid was really popular. And so I made Kool-Aid and it made the water <laughs> drinkable, you know. Uh, but then you know, and every, you know, it's fine. The water's fine. It's good to, you know, fine to drink. It's, you know, it's potable <laughs> drinking water. But then I did some research. I remember in 2005, 
you know, it turns out that the groundwater was actually contaminated with tritium and radium, you know, strontium. In 2012, there's a New York Times article about Braidwood water specifically, that it's above legal limits in arsenic, alpha activity, you know, uh, strontium, <laughs> lead. And in 2001, I looked up the, you know, the, or I, I'm sorry, 2021, I looked up like the, the current stuff. And it's got, you know, again, radium, nitrate, nit uh, uh, nitrate. I'm not, I think I'm saying that wrong. Bromoform, all this stuff, right? So there's tons of chemicals that are in the water, and there are legal limits to this. But I can't imagine that there's any safe legal limit to radium. I remember even when I was in college, this, there was radium in the water there, and they'd say, "Oh, this can fall into your bones and cause cancer, can bioaccumulate, last forever." Like, at what point is there no safe legal limit, and a, there should be a zero tolerance for things, you know? And I think that. You know, call me crazy, but radioactive particles, I think there should be a no tolerance policy for that in the water. I was wondering why you were glowing on my screen. And now <laughs> you see this. I got a green halo. Like it's weird. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> you know, I don't love I don't love it. But is it harmful to me? Am I the fact that I'm radioactive? Does that give me superpowers or is this am I going to die cancer when I'm, you know, 45? Well, both. <laughs> make 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 Maybe. make uh, with a high degree of certainty. Yeah, <laughs> that's the known unknown. Power while you're living. <laughs> yeah. The the issue so, of uh, you know what is a safe dose of a radioactive material like radium yeah. uh, is interesting that you bring that up because uh, the model that EPA uses when regular well let me back up a little bit. Okay. Um, Back when uh, it was demonstrated that uh, radioactive materials cause mutation, which is the main mm -hmm. manner in which they damage the body and cause cancer, um, the the proponents, the, the, the person who made the discovery and got the Nobel Prize for it, uh, was a strong proponent of the belief that there is no safe dose of radioactive material. Right. Uh, that one molecule of radium could mutate one cell in the body and ultimately that could result in cancer. And, and as a result, a, a model was developed with which um, the risk associated with a radiation exposure was developed and it's called a linear no threshold model. And as the name implies, it's, uh, it's basically a model that says, you know, for every uh, molecule of radiation you're exposed to, you're going to get a certain amount of mutations and it's a linear response and it goes all the way down to zero and the only safe mm. dose is no dose a zero right um, and that model has held through the years or been I should say it's been used through the years um, right <laughs> the, the, yeah. the data doesn't support the model uh, hmm. at all and uh, but it, but it's still around and people still use it and EPA uses the model when evaluating chemical carcinogens so they assume, that there's no safe dose of a chemical carcinogen. And so then the issue is, well, then how do you regulate these things? And um, rather than taking the route of saying, well, we just can't use them, we can't have them, um, because there are a lot of reasons why EPA can't and doesn't do that, um, but they're basically their role is to determine what is, how can we safely use these things? And um, they have chosen the number one in a million, virtually mm -hmm. arbitrarily. But <laughs> yeah. basically what they're saying is that if, if based on the linear no threshold model, if this mm -hmm. chemical causes one excess cancer in a population of a million people, we're going to consider that the threshold. We can't go higher than that. Anything okay. higher than that is unacceptable. Mm -hmm. um, personally, I think it's pretty wacky. <laughs> How do you feel about? It? I can I can sense the disdain in your voice. How do you feel about that? You don't you don't you don't like that? You I don't, want more people to have know. cancer. Is that really what you're saying? You prefer no. What I'm saying is that there's there's a <laughs> yeah. there's a threshold that yeah. that there's nothing special about cancer as an impact of chemicals. It's it's damage mm. that a chemical can cause, um, but it's a dose phenomenon, and mm. at some level, at some point. The dose is going to be sufficiently low that the risk of getting cancer is negligible. EPA is saying, well, we agree, and we define negligible as one in a million. Um, mm -hmm. But that, if you use the one in a million model, it's, it, it, 
the science just doesn't support it. You know, I, uh, all, all of the data indicates that it's, it's a threshold phenomenon and, uh, and we should treat carcinogens like we treat all other chemicals. Figure out what the safety threshold is and make sure people aren't exposed to anything higher than that. Yeah, I mean, I, I understand what you're saying. I don't know that I want to drink water with tritium and radium and strontium you know, in it, because there's also, you can talk, like I mentioned before, you can talk about them individually and, you know, is strontium bad for you to drink as one chemical, but it's not, you're getting a cocktail of radioactive. I mean, this is something that, you know, like tox the toxic Avenger would drink to get his superpowers. I mean, yeah. that's what we're talking about. So, so I do have a, I, I'm fine with the one in a million model because I don't want to be that one. <laughs> I got some pretty bad luck sometimes and I don't want to be that one in a million guy. I'm not the one in a million who's going to win the lottery. I might be the one in a million who catches cancer from, from uh, excessive alpha particles in my water. Uh, but one of the other weird things that they did as a kid, was they had this district in, in town called MAD, the Mosquito Abatement District. And anyone who's lived in the Midwest or anywhere where there's mosquitoes, you know, uh, in a third world country, they're deadly. In the United States, they're just pretty annoying. But I remember they would go through town with this big truck and they would just fog the area. They didn't tell you when they were coming by and you would just hear the truck coming up the street and they would and just it, blast a fog of this insecticide down your street, and it's the middle of the summer in Illinois, humid, hot, windows open, you know? So we had to rush to close all the windows. And just, you know, in preparation for this interview, I went on the uh, Braidwood, Braidwood, Illinois Mosquito Abatement District website. And the first question is, you know, so they have an FAQ section. And the first question that they are supposedly answer is, what insecticide do you use in the fogger? There is no answer underneath it. It's just a question that they don't answer. And then down the list, they say like, oh, is this, you know, w when are you coming by? You know, like, when do you come by to, to fog? And it says, well, the Illinois does not require us to tell you when <laughs> we're going to fog. Right. But it's like that level. I think it's that level of attitude that, well, if we're not legally required to do something, we're not going to do something as simple as telling you what's in the fog that we're spraying at your house and when we're going to do it. That annoys me, because even if you tell me that, well, the insecticide affects insects and it's not really going to affect the biological actions of a human or a mammal, okay, I, I can understand that. I'm guessing that breathing in that insecticide is more harmful than breathing in clean air. Not a scientist, just guessing. But the fact that people would be so uh, stubborn and jerkish to not tell you these things, that's where I have a problem. And my cynicism just goes through the roof here, Jerry. Understandable. And, uh, you know, it, it, it makes no sense to me. Uh, have I stunned you? I feel like I've stunned you into silence. Would you, you know, you're just I, imagining I, the fog of this fog coming into I, your I, living I, room I agree while you're. I agree 100%. And, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the, the fogging that they're doing now in Illinois is different from the fogging that they were doing when you were a kid. Um, <laughs> right. And that's, I, I suppose yes. that's good news. When you were a kid, uh, they were spraying DDT more than likely. Uh, oh, God. And, and now they're spraying pipe rethroids, which are uh, much, much less toxic to humans. But that's not a reason for hiding that fact. One of the things that I, yeah. I like, and pyrethroids are really popular right now uh, for insect control. And, um, and the reason for it is because while they get into our body, our body has the machinery to just chop it up real quickly and get it out. So our tolerance of pyrethroids is very high. Insects don't have that machinery, so they're more susceptible. Um, but uh, the pyrethroids are, it's a, you know, it's a, a class of insecticides. Mm -hmm. And um, the original chemical, the original insecticide was a natural product came from the the uh, pyrethrum plant. Uh, oh right, yeah, right, right. Um, and and so there, when I read things about you know towns are spraying or companies that will come to your house and spray for mosquitoes, uh, they always say that you know we use a, a chemical that is quote natural. Mm -hmm. And 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 I look at that and I say you know what a bunch of bull because they're using a synthetic pyrethroid. Uh, you know, it has no relationship to the original pyrethrum and or has little relationship. Right. And it was synthesized in a lab. I mean, this, to say that this thing is natural and therefore safe is ludicrous. And, you know, <laughs> right. It's 
And and I agree with you. I mean, uh, you know, regardless of the fact that pyrethroids are uh, pretty non-toxic to humans, uh, I don't spray around my house. Uh, I had a neighbor that used to spray, and uh, and I used to get pretty upset, and uh, and I used to watch the sprayer like a like a hawk to make sure he was doing it properly and not spraying on my property. Um, did he know what I you did for a living? I'm sorry. <laughs> did he know what you did for a living? No, he didn't. No, <laughs> should have should have educated him. But yeah, I think you know transparency is important, uh, mm. but it's just. Abuse is is easy, and uh, and oftentimes towns are ignorant, applicators are ignorant, and all and they you know these chemicals are dangerous. So if they're misused, um, they have the potential to cause problems. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think it's also part of you know I think there is an industry push to to not the the less informa- information is power, right? And the less information you give out the better for the people doing the thing that may cause concern. You yeah. Know? You know what I mean? The less, the less information you get, the weaker you are. Yeah, uh, exactly. So I think yeah, people are more, they do enjoy keeping information from people. But, you know, even in a small town, it's like, what well, what power do you have except that everyone's going to be annoyed that you're spraying insecticide into their living rooms, you know? But why why say we're not going to tell you when we're going to fog because we're not required to yeah, legally? Sure. You know, like the sense of decency goes out the window. And I think maybe, you know, after talking with you, I think really my hang up is people using this information incorrectly. It's not that I think every chemical is harmful. I think that, you know, obviously there's a lot of truth to what you say, uh, which <laughs> I mean, most everything you're saying is true and logical minds do win out. Most everything I'm saying Most is everything. True. I, I think so. I would say most. I give you with a high degree of certainty. I think that there are still some known unknowns in what you're saying, but I would say with a high degree of certainty, what you're saying is true from my, my lack my uneducated mind, uh, because my cynicism still overlaps here. But I think... All that stuff is – my real problem is people misusing information or just not being transparent about things, right? And, and I'll close with this. There, there's one thing I did want to mention that I thought was super interesting and, and relatively recent uh, was uh, Zantec was recently recalled, I think in 2020. Uh, Ranitidine is the generic name for it, and this is um, an antacid. And this was interesting to me because it contains NDMA at unacceptable levels, which I believe is a carcinogen. And the CEO said that this particular chemical is inherently unstable, and they knew this, and that when exposed to heat, it breaks down. And over the course of time, it breaks down more and more into this you know, carcinogen. And this is like clearly they knew this. They wanted to get it to market. They were not transparent. The FDA let it go through. This is something that was on the shelf for years and goes to the point that I was making earlier where we're told that this is safe. This is a great form of control of acid reflux or whatever. And then 10 years later, it's like, oh, by the way, yeah, it's not. We kind of got caught. It's not okay. And when more things like this happen, my cynicism kicks in. And when I hear people like you, despite how logically you're telling me these things, I think to myself, this can't be true. Chemicals are evil and they're going to kill us all. But you can see where, you know, my craziness comes from. Yeah, I understand. I mean, you know, if we had the time, I could give you some, you know, what some I consider great. I'm sorry? Some pointers, some pointers on how to no, calm no, down I mean, and relax. Great and, examples of uh, situations where we thought things were safe, and and then we realized that they really weren't, and they caused a lot of damage in hindsight. Yeah, um, it happens all the time, and that's why we have to be really careful. Um, you know, I said earlier that most of the chemicals that are out there are benign. Well, regardless of that, we got to be concerned about the few that are really bad, and we got to yeah. catch them in time before they do any damage. And so we have yeah. to be really vigilant. And we have to do the work that needs to be done. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the purpose of the book is, is really to, you know, we talk about transparency and lack of information. And, and, and what I hope I get across in the book is simply that there's, there is a lot of information out there that is readily accessible to people. And it's not hard to use in making decisions. And, um, you know, I hope, I, can, I hope it serves as a guide. I mean, I think, I mean, I mean it's bad. 
You know, right. sometimes yeah, yeah. it's going to say, hey, this is this chemical is not a problem. And sometimes the, the results will say, hey, I shouldn't be using this chemical. And in the book, there are examples that go in both directions. You know, I, I think so 100%. I mean, one of the things that I did find interesting, and I'm looking through my notes now, I, I, I put a whole list together of, of all the chemicals that mimic estrogen in the body uh, and, you know, give men breasts. I had a whole list of them uh, because there are quite a few. And I think to myself, I, people are exposed to this so often uh, that it's one of these things where you don't, you know, one, maybe BPA alone, as that couple in your example at the end of your book says, that maybe from BPA alone, you're not going to, you know, get enough of this estrogen, you know, replicating chemical. But there's a lot of things that do very similar, you know, biologically speaking, they have the same action yep. that, and you're exposed to so much of it. Like, that's the type of stuff that worries me. The, a lot of these similar yep. chemicals, you know, as they get synthesized that are very almost identical. You know, in their action. No, it's that's very, very true, and uh, and and again, um, you know, we're talking about the hazard associated with these chemicals. They share a common hazard. They cause. Mm -hmm. They act like an estrogen, uh, yeah. and and then we need to consider the other side of the of the formula, and that is, so how how much of these are we exposed to, and and sort of encompassing all of that is how potent are these things. Right. A lot you can you know you can do a, a Google search on estrogenic chemicals and you can get a, a long list, but mm -hmm. the majority of these have been shown to be estrogenic in cultured cells in petri dishes, uh, where you know scientists are literally dumping you know the chemical on the cells. Uh, yeah. It's just not realistic with respect mm -hmm. to what people are exposed to, and right. uh, and, and so it's just something that needs to be taken into the, into consideration. Um, yeah, I think so. And not even, you know, and all the, we didn't even mention the pharmaceuticals that are, you know, urinated out or, or re, you know, yeah. removed from our body that go into our water and get flushed down the toilet. You know, a lot of birth control out there. The mo there you go. I mean, the most problematic yeah. estrogen in the environment right now comes from birth control pills. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's wonky. I mean, water water is a big thing. You know, Aaron Brockovich taught us that. We didn't get into, you know, f the Flint, Michigan stuff, uh, you know, flammable water, you know, from fracking. Mm. There's all kinds of stuff. Uh, but, you know, so as I've mentioned, you are, I think you are very, very close, 80% uh, accurate. I'm sure you take issue with that. And I want you to tell people why. People find you, uh, complain about me, find your book, uh, all that stuff. Well, the book is Everyday Chemicals, uh, Understanding the Risk, and it's published by a Columbia University Press. It's uh, available at any of the uh, online uh, booksellers uh, in addition to uh, Columbia University. And uh, I'm a professor at NC State, and uh, I welcome comments. And um, I would probably, if anyone wanted to contact me, it'd be best to contact me through the uh, book-related email address, which is everydaychemicalsbook, one word, dot com. Uh, what about Twitter, Facebook, Instagram? I don't TikTok, have a big, I don't have a big social Mastodon. media presence right now. Okay. <laughs> all right. No, that's fair enough. Uh, and you, of course, you can find this show, and I'll put links to all of the articles and, and all of Jerry. I'm going to call you Dr. LeBlanc. All right. Uh, all of his stuff up on the website, fascinatingnouns.com. And you can find us on Twitter at fascinatingnoun, on Facebook at fascinatingnouns. And uh, of course, if you're not, if you're just listening to this on the podcast feed on all your available podcast platforms, watch us. I'm sitting here talking to Jerry like we're old pals up on youtube.com backslash Dan. Daniel J. Glenn. Uh, well, Jerry, this has been a fascinating conversation. I don't know. I've got my neuroses are pretty ingrained. Uh, I don't know if if they're going to go away, but you've definitely made me you, you you tickle that logical, rational part of my brain. And I hope to follow your lead and take, you know, some of the uh, the steps that you talk about in your book because they're easy and logical. They don't always require reading 16 articles, uh, peer-reviewed <laughs> reviews to make the nice decision, the logical, smart decision. So hopefully I'm going to incorporate this in my life and have fewer chemicals uh, or at least fewer neuroses associated with them. So thank you very much for giving me and arming me with that information. Oh, you're very welcome. It was a pleasure talking with you. I enjoyed it very much. And I appreciate how well uh, prepared you were. You clearly read the book. <laughs> I did. It's true. I did read. The, I did read the book. Well, thank you for that. And of course, I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night.
Fascinating Nouns is a Glencoe production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. And I'm guessing after listening to this, you never want to miss another episode. You're going to want to subscribe. We are on all of your favorite podcasting platforms, and we even have links right there on our show website, which is fascinatingnouns.com. You can find all the links right there. And let's say you don't have a favorite podcasting platform. That's no problem. You can listen to every episode right there on the website, which is once again, fascinatingnouns.com. And while you're there, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter. It's a great way to learn more about the episodes that you're listening to, find out about upcoming episodes, and to just keep in touch with the community. It's right there on the website. Speaking of community, there's no better way to stay in touch than on social media. And you can find links to our show's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and YouTube pages right there on the front page of fascinatingnouns.com. And speaking of YouTube, there's a video version of this episode there right now, uh, as well as other past episodes and all future episodes. It's going to be right there, youtube.com backslash Daniel J. Glenn. It's a great way to see all the guests and, uh, you know, check it out live and in person. Feel like you're there in studio. Great way to do it, youtube.com backslash Daniel J. Glenn. And finally, if you like this show, you're going to like everything that I do. Go to DanielJGlenn.com and check out all of my projects and see what's going on. Once again, thank you for listening. End of transmission.